Welcome to the Easel Studio Podcast. This is the audio version of an episode that was originally broadcast on easel.eu. If you wish to watch rather than listen, go to Easel Campus to see all the episodes on demand. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Rajiv Jalan. I'm a hepatologist here at UCL and Rolfrey in the UK. And I'm also the scientific director for European Foundation for Cliff. Welcome to this Easel Studio, your weekly hepatology broadcast news. In today's episode, we will be talking about liver transplantation for patients with ACLF and with our experts discussing the opportunities, challenges, and pitfalls. And I'd just like to take this moment to introduce you to our faculty. And we are very lucky today to be joined by uh, Professor Marina Berenga, who is a hepatologist at the La Fe Hospital in Valencia. And she is the past president of ILTS, which is the International Liver Transplantation Society. Welcome, Marina. It is also a pleasure for me to introduce to you Professor Luca Belli, who's a hepatologist at the Negordia Hospital in Italy. And he is a treasurer of ELITA, which is the European Liver Transplantation Association. So we have two eminent hepatologists with transplantation interest. And then finally, we, I want to introduce to you Professor uh, Thierry Artner, who is a hepatologist intensivist working in Strasbourg. And he's done a huge amount of work in terms of in looking at patients with ACLF3. Welcome, Terry. Welcome, Luca, to the show. Pleasure. I just want to start. Can I have the slide one, please? I want to start this session really by dedicating this studio to the memory of one of our very close colleagues uh, whose name is uh, common in terms of thinking about transplantation for ACLF. He was a transplant hepatologist. He recently died at the age of 42, very young. The transplant hepatologist who was working as Cedar cyanide in California. His contributions to the field of liver transplantation in ACLF has been absolutely phenomenal. And a lot of the evidence that we'll be talking about today uh, and discussing in this particular studio was actually generated by him. And as a liver community, we feel a deep sense of loss and uh, the whole of the liver field, we think, will miss him very, very deeply. And I just want to sort of uh, take a, a moment here to reflect on his contributions before moving on to the next segment, uh, which is a unique uh, presentation in this sort of easel studio. So just moving on from Vinay, it is really a great pleasure for me now to introduce to you Dr. Amit Varma and his wife, Dr. Devangi Varma, who are um, colleagues uh, of ours here in the UK. So Amit had a primary sclerosing cholangitis and received a liver transplantation for ACLF grade three nearly two years ago. And it is uh, uh, a real pleasure for us to welcome uh, them to our studio today 
to tell us a little bit about the issues with respect to liver transplantation in this very, very intriguing situation. So I wonder, Amit, um, whether you can tell us a little bit about your overall experience and uh, so that um, our audience gets a feel for the patient perspective of this uh, terrible disease and the role of transplantation. So hello everyone, um, uh, my name is Amit Bama. I was diagnosed with uh, PSC and uh, UC actually in 2008. Um, professionally, I'm a pediatric trainee and I was on the verge of completing training when I actually got unwell. I'd uh, just uh, secured a local consultant job and I was due to start um, my consultant uh, job in March 2020. In the interest of time, I'm going to just fast forward to January 11, 2020. It was 7.30 in the evening and I was getting ready for a night shift. I woke up not feeling so great and I had a fever of 38.7. And this was before COVID was frontline news. So I did as many of us would have done. I went to work. Thinking back to that day, I really don't know manage how I did that night. And by the morning, I thought something wasn't right. So I need to get checked out. I had no idea at that point that I would call Royal Free Hospital home for the next six months. Fast forward to 7th of February, I had already been in ITU for three weeks. Uh, I now have a ileostomy for toxic megacolon and I've just returned from my second laparotomy a few days back following wound dehiscence and abdominal sepsis. The lights fade and I slip into hepatic encephalopathy. For my family, for my wife Dev, this must have been the hardest 240 hours of their life. Um, and I'm sure she'll be able to elaborate further from that. Thank you, Ahmed. So Dev, you know, you actually bore the brunt of the um, illness beyond uh, Amit's encephalopathy, and it'd be wonderful to hear from you, you know, the, the, the issues that you went through till the time Amit woke up again. So thank you very much for being here. And we look forward to hearing your thoughts. Genuinely my pleasure. So um, hi, everybody. I'm Dev again, as Amit said, I'm his wife. Um, I'm actually a consultant pediatrician. I was a trainee but at the end of my training um, when all of this was going on. So I'm very used to looking after babies and children, including those who, look, who need looking after in the intensive care unit. And having trained in London, I understand the way our, well, our health care system works a bit too well. It's hard being um, the relative of someone who has been at the brink of death three times in three weeks. I talk on behalf of our friends and family when I say that. Um, it's even harder though, being that relative when you're a doctor and a wife with a three-year-old daughter. And the relative is your husband who is a witty young doctor himself who is intelligent and an absolutely beautiful human being. He was just unfortunate to have been born with PSE. So Amit had already been in hospital, as he says, for almost four weeks he was in ITU for three weeks when he became encephalopathic on the 7th of February 2020. He had acute on chronic liver failure. He was intubated for the third time that admission with his third central line and arc lines being reinserted. He was placed on the filter um, and it was that Monday morning 10th of February when a new consultant came on the attending and suggested an acute liver transplant the concept of him needing a transplant, that admission, wasn't really something that had been discussed with me or Amit at all. 
um, I had been present for practically every ITU, every hepatology, every microbiology ward round, and it was never mentioned. I remember the next few days while Amit was encephalopathic and blissfully unaware at the time, does Amit really, would Amit really want to transplant? And I remember saying, well, of course he would, of course he would want to transplant, but truly, how could I actually ever know that? I couldn't discuss with him anymore, obviously. And just with our friends and family, I had to make a decision somehow. I remember a blur of hepatologists, surgeons, anaesthetists coming in and out of this glass-windowed IT room with about a hundred get well soon cards surrounding him. I did not quite understand why so many people were coming to see him. It became clear a little bit later that everyone was being asked to form an opinion whether he should be transplanted or not. That's right, an opinion. It became clear that not many were in favor of his transplant. He had abdominal sepsis, he had multi-organ failure. I won't go through all the details, I'm sure um, you can all imagine, but he had an awful wound and two laparotomies within the space of a month. But somehow on the 11th of February, 2020, he was put on an acute transplant list and he had no idea he was being placed on that list. I understand the balance of resources, I do. Amit was lucky that he was given a chance by his team and they fought for him. But I truly hope and pray for a system where others like Amit are all given a chance. I was quoted almost 100% mortality if he didn't receive an organ and an 80% one if he did. It was a no-brainer for me, please excuse that pun. But I remember my hand shaking as I signed that consent form, not really knowing how much to tell his parents or mine. Sorry. Long story short, an organ was available in six days and he had a transplant on the 17th of February. I sat by his side for well over 15 hours a day, praying to be there when he woke up, praying that he did wake up, praying that I made the right decision. He did wake up, thankfully, obviously, um, but that did start the toughest month of his life ahead. Thank you. Well, uh, thank you. I'm sorry um, to put you through this um, terrible ordeal of uh, thought, but thank you for sharing that with us. Amit, so tell us a little bit about your recovery, you know. Um, you know, we think it's a straightforward life or death thing, but uh, it'd be nice to hear from you sure. what you've gone through in the last uh, year or so. So I woke up after my transplant and my brain was still fogged with opiates. I thought, to me, I thought it was my first day as a consultant. Um, my brain thought I'd driven to work and I'm sitting in a chair waiting for a handover. Um, I was surprised to see that in front of me and my head was really thinking, why is she here? Her ecstatic face was matched with my face of confusion. My medic cap took over at some point and I could recognize that I had an art line, a pick line. Oh, and I couldn't speak and later realizing that I didn't have a tracheostomy. It was a few days later that I understood that I actually had liver transplant. And actually that's where my journey started. I had severe critical care neuropathy and myopathy that affected all four limbs. And like a newborn, I had to learn, or in my case, relearn how to use every muscle in my body. I spent 32 days without water as I had an unsafe swallow. It took five days for me to sit on the side of the bed without losing balance. Oh, and the pain. There were nights where the pain was unbearable despite ever-increasing doses of opiates. 
Also, my sleep wake cycle had reversed, making it harder to concentrate during the day. It was now around mid-March, and of course, no one will ever forget this time. COVID was all around me, and I could see people in, in full PPE in the rooms to the left and right of me. I was moved four times to keep me safe. Thankfully, I did escape COVID and I was discharged to the ward, but this also meant that no one was able to visit me. I still remember the day I was able to wake there again with the aid of a walking frame and two assistants by insight. It was really hard work, but at the same time, amazing. My hands took longer to get better, and I'm ever so grateful for the staff who fed me breakfast, lunch, and dinner. The real test started for me on 7th of July when I got discharged home. I went from running a busy pediatric a &E department to being practically carried up the stairs and being completely, completely dependent. I think after moving my left wrist a thousand times, I, I got a flicker of movement, but that only made me do it more and more. Sometimes I woke up realizing that subconsciously I already started my physio for the day. A few, after a few months, I left my walking frame behind. I said goodbye to my adapted cutlery. I carried on coloring with my daughter in the hope that I'll be able to write again. I resumed clinical practice back in November 2021. My anxieties resuming practice wasn't the medicine, it was more fundamental, like changing into scrubs, writing, and standing on a wardrobe. But I do like a challenge. And 10 months later from that point, here I am. I got my CCT back in June, June this year, and I'm currently looking for a consultant job. I'm not completely unscathed, but I'm more like a version 2.0. <laughs> I'll never be able to uh, pay the incredible team back. So instead I'm hoping to pay it forward and give back to the AHS through my clinical service. I would never have had the strength without the support and my wonderful friends, wife and family. They truly worked a miracle for me, and I'm sure there are patients out there who would benefit from that chance, even if on paper it looks bleak for a second life. I'd like to thank everyone for giving us this uh, platform and a chance to tell our story. Thank you. Well, thank you, Ahmed. Thank you, Dev. And um, again, we are very grateful for you to come onto this uh, studio to tell us your story. It's very inspiring, and you know, hopefully. Uh, for us as a community, we can focus more on our patients than we usually do where we talk more about science than anything else. So thank you again and um, uh, all the very best. And, you know, hopefully we'll see you around. All the best. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so now we just, we come back to our experts now to talk about the science and the clinical side. But I, I hope that, um, you know, you all get a sense for, the, the the huge burden that ACLF uh, transplant carries. And um, maybe we just start off with Luca, perhaps, to tell us a little bit about what is ACLF? How do you stage it? Is it validated? And tell us about, um, you know, whether our criteria are appropriate when we think about transplanting people such as Amit. Or is it too late, do you think? Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you, Rajiv. I want to get started, first of all, saying that I was very much impressed by the clinical story and the personal story of Dr. Varam and, and his wife. I think their testimony is the best 
the most effective way to convince the community that liver transplantation for patients with ACLF free should be done and that we should do much more for sure. I'm going back to your point, Didier, you know, acute on chronic liver failure is something that has always existed. Whenever a patient with chronic liver disease had an, a, an abrupt decompensation, an abrupt deterioration of, of the liver, but the uh, only more recently it has been recognized as a specific syndrome with a, uh, let's say, very likely specific pathogenetic mechanism. And the most valuable criteria, diagnostic criteria, and also prognostic criteria have been proposed by the European Foundation of CRIF. And according to CRIF, the definition of acute and chronic liver failure is just the occurrence of acute decompensation of the liver, which means bleeding, uh, rapid developing ascites or rapid developing encephalopathy, typically triggered by some precipitant, not always, in 70%, almost 70% of the cases, infection very common, and in association with one or more organ failure. And to me, this is the most convincing and original um, approach to the disease, not to look at the disease as the, the disease of just of the liver, but in the more advanced stage, it becomes a systemic disease with a multi-organ involvement. And there are six organs to be considered, the liver, the kidney, the coagulation, the brain, the function of the lungs and of the circulation. And the uh, uh, more organ failure are involved, the higher is the mortality risk for, for the patients. And the condition is typically uh, staged in three major stages, I would say, depending on the number of organ failure. SLF1 means one organ failure, SLFT2, two, two organ failures, and ACLF3, three or more uh, uh, organ failure. And having this uh, classification is very important uh, also for the clinicians so they can discuss together and understand much better together and also to give better information to patients and to, to their families. In addition, the, uh, the, the CLIP provided also another very useful tool, which is a prognostic tool. You have, uh, let's say, a broad uh, a mortality risk depending on, on the grade of your ACLF, but uh, you, uh, you have this tool which is the, uh, available on the, on the internet, the uh, Cliff CACLF score, which takes into account not only the number of organ failures, but also the age and the leukocyte of the patients. And so this allows you just to have a, a more, more precise prediction of the prognosis of, your, uh, of the patient we are treating. I think we can stop here. This uh, this yeah. uh, this criteria have been validated in uh, in, uh, in in uh, externally, and so I think they are quite solid, and we are all using them in, at least in the West. Thank you, Luca. Maybe Terry, can you tell us a little bit about ACLF three, for instance? What do you think is the survival of these patients um, in the ICU? You know. Sure. Without a liver transplant. 
Sure. So without a liver transplant, it's pretty clear that the survival of patients with ACLF3, so with multiple organ failures, three, four, five, six, is very poor. Um, this was shown in the initial um, study that described and defined ACLF. And it's also very clear, I think, for the, um, the community uh, of hepatologists and intensivists that without liver transplant, um, the chance of survival is very low uh, in the ICU. And even if these patients come out of the ICU, it's around 10%, something like that. I think that's one of the reasons why intensivists are so reluctant uh, to take into their ward um, under their care patients who have cirrhosis and multiple organ failure. And it's understandable because without organ trans uh, transplant, there's not very much we can offer to them in terms of medium or long-term survival. So it's very hard to reverse multiple organ failure for cirrhotic patients in the ICU. And so, of course, the question is, can liver transplant reverse multiple organ failure for these, for these patients? Thank you, Thierry. So it brings us really nicely on to Marina. So Marina, you know, so we have got Ahmet with ACLF3 in the ICU. Um, so was he a fluke in terms of uh, a good outcome, or do you think that there is really a role for liver transplantation for patients with ACLF? And what is the evidence that it is a good thing to do? I think he, Rajiv, I think he's really the perfect example. I think it's great that you, brought, I mean, that he was here today to really explain, kind of tell us about his history because he's the typical, I mean, he's a good example. He's not, his age is not very old. In fact, um, the data tell us, tells us that um, pretty much uh, patients with acute ACLF2 and 3 who are transplanted, the survival rate is around 80% and even more at one year. Uh, there's even data for 90% survival rates from multicenter studies. But clearly these data come from um, selected patients. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think anywhere people are just transplanting everybody uh, and they're somehow pre-selecting these patients. They need to definitely um, uh, eliminate uh, patients or um, not propose a transplantation for patients who have very severe comorbidities. I would say the same that we do for other other candidates. Yeah. And uh, but I think his case was a, an excellent case because I think, for instance, we don't look at uh, the physical general physical status. And if you think about this person that we just saw, I think he was young. He was probably quite healthy before that. He was not sarcopenic. He was not fragile at the beginning. Probably. In the course of the disease, he became fragile while he was admitted in the ICU for, for a month or so before transplantation. But I think he's a typical example that despite multi-organ failures, probably four more organ failures based on what he was telling us, I would say he was a candidate to survive transplantation and clearly to have a much better outcome than uh, without transplantation. So, you know, as we heard, Marina, you know, he obviously had a very prolonged, very difficult course, uh, even after a successful liver transplant. So survival is not the sole endpoint for ACLF transplantation. Do you agree with that? I mean, I think they also, I think the wife 
said it beautifully, they know that the resources that are implicated here are much higher. I mean, we know that also from other type of patients that we've transplanted over the year. These are patients that are more complicated. In fact, the phenotype of patients that we have transplanted recently are much more complicated. And these patients develop multiple complications post-transplantation. Quite often they were infected before transplantation that get reinfected after transplantation. They have invasions, invasive uh, tools everywhere. And, um, and, and, and so the, 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 the resources that we, in the time of uh, hospitalization, the time in the ICU mostly is quite prolonged in these patients sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, and the cost. Um, is higher. And that's also true for other indications that we still accept. I think we need to go for survival in these patients um, and not just look at uh, cost. I mean, it's important, but I don't think it's the major endpoint. Thank you. So resource utilization obviously is really important. And, you know, uh, I'm sure the hospital will come back to us to tell us. Uh, so do you have an estimate of how much more does it cost to transplant a patient with ACLF3 compared with those without? I don't, I'm not sure there's a lot of data, probably about like four times higher that what uh, based on, but I would say that it does happen also for other type of patients. We are now, again, I think probably maintaining a patient in the ICU. Mm -hmm. um, those that are very sick, their mortality is very high in a short period of time. But it's going to take sometimes, you know, 30, 28 days, 30, 60 days for this. And that's also a huge amount of uh, resources that uh, we put into these ACLF patients. I'm not sure there's really data comparing, you know, the, just the ACLF patients maintain on their own as a whole compared to uh, transplanting these patients. And in fact, transplanting these patients as early as possible because then the outcome is much better and the number of complications are lower also. Well, thank you, Marina. So I think you, you're, I think you talked a little bit about selected patients. And so maybe we come to Thierry who is looking after these people in ICU all the time. And so how do you select these patients, uh, Thierry? And uh, when is it, do you think that it is too far, you know, uh, when, when should we stop? So what is an appropriate patient and, you know, when is it that, you know, we think that it is unlikely to work? So you've done a lot of work in this area. So please give us your thoughts. So I think it's a, it's a three-stage process. First of all, the patient needs to be referred uh, to an ICU within a liver transplant patient, uh, within a liver transplant center. And so you evaluate the patient on the telephone often with a colleague because most of these patients will not have been listed prior to being to developing ACLF, as was the case uh, with Amit. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the first step, and, and it's kind of general evaluation over the phone. If the patient is transferred to your ICU in the liver transplant center, you need to have a very fast pre-transplant workup. So that's the second stage. Uh, and then I think it's important to go through uh, the medical history, of course, and then have um, cardiovascular checks, sometimes coronarography, at least uh, ultrasound. Uh, and I think here it's very important to stress how different this workup is from what, we use, from what liver transplant hepatologists usually do when they have outpatient care. Here it's going to be uh, done by the intensivist. So they have to be on board. Um, 
once you've uh, made sure that the patient didn't have uh, comorbidities or neoplasia or cancer or some, uh, something that would uh, be a, a contraindication to transplant, the patient is listed in the ICU, which was the case for Amit. So you list them while they're in the ICU. And then you have the period when uh, the transplant team and the intensivists are waiting for the organ proposal. And then all sorts of things can happen in that period because these patients have multiple organ failures and it's very hard to describe the course the clinical course that they're going to take. In certain sense, more complicated than um, ALF because all sorts of things can go wrong at different stages. They can bleed, uh, they can um, have a new sepsis, uh, different kinds of sepsis, they can have a, a fungal infection. And so uh, you, you do standard uh, good ICU care. And then the last step, I think, is when there is an organ, organ proposal, you need to make sure that the patient can be transplanted. You need to make sure that you're going to go forward to uh, the operating theater. And then you need to make sure uh, you can say it's okay or, or to say, no, 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 we have to wait for this patient to get better because it's not reasonable to, to transplant them. And, and then I think there are several, um, several criteria that have been put forward. Uh, one of them is the TAM score that, that, uh, that, we, de that we helped develop in Strasbourg. So, the age, I think, is really important, arterial lactate level, um, the respiratory status. If they have ARDS, it's a very bad idea. And then what Luca and others have shown in, in the Cleef Elita study, so if the patient has a multidrug resistance infection, I think it's not, uh, um, not reasonable to go forward. And lastly, I think it's important to take these different criteria together. It's not one criteria where you will say, the patient is too old or the patient's lactate level is too, is too high. I think it's a combination of criteria where you can say, okay, we're not moving forward with the transplant. That doesn't mean that the patient won't be transplanted, but you have to wait for another organ. Well, thank you. So in, in, if I understand what you're saying, that um, you know, it's a combination of respiratory circulatory infection that really determines which patients are likely to do badly. And would you agree that determining futility, and Marina, you have some views here, is extremely, extremely difficult. And, you know, it is difficult at the, this point to draw boundaries when to say no. But for you, um, maybe Marina, you can also comment, is when is it absolute? If you give me one or two criteria, that's absolutely no, no, maybe theory and then Marina, putting you on the spot here. I don't like the idea of utility because I think for an individual patient, there is always a utility to be transplanted when they're in ACF3. So if I had to decide for myself or for, or for my patient, you know, I want to transplant them when they have ACF3, no matter what, you know. Um, so there's always individual utility. So the question is not futility. The question is to balance individual utility with collective utility. And then the issue really is, is what kind of difference between the general population of transplanted patients, uh, survival, are you, are you ready to accept when you're transplanting patients with ACLF3? So personally, I'm a utilitarian. So I want very high survival for everyone. Okay, um, but I can understand that in your individual care of a patient, you want to transplant them. They're your patient, you know, the patient of your team, and you've seen them, and, and you want to push forward. 
But I think it's very important that we have um, criteria to be able to say, okay, this is like less than 20% survival at one year, we're not going forward with the transplant. And where you set the bar depends on which center you're in and also how many organs are available to you. Maybe in 10 years, we'll have more organs and we, and we can transplant more patients with ACR3, hopefully. Marina. I couldn't have said it better. I completely, completely agree with you. I think it does depend. I think transplantation, as we just heard before, I mean, the outcome without transplantation is about, it's probably survival rate of around 10% at most in many of these patients. So transplantation for the vast, vast majority is gonna bring a benefit for the patient. So again, the problem is the utility in terms of the society. And this is significantly related to the organ shortage that you may have in your unit. How many patients are awaiting transplantation? It's probably very different, for instance, in Germany compared to my center when we have a waiting list that is less than one month in general. So it's it, it's really, I think it it. That's why I, I don't like futility either, because I think even 20% of one year, I would say that I would go for, for that. I mean, it's a 20%, but it's much better than not being transplanted. Well, thank you for that. Because, you know, what, what both you and Thierry have said is that you would transplant, 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 and, you know, in order to save a life. But um, maybe we go to Luca, because his paper, which he recently published in Journal of Hepatology, identified a huge problem, that there's a huge inequity of access. And maybe Luca, you can tell us a little bit about the ECLIS study and this sort of uh, observation that you made of um, very vastly different uh, transplantation rates across Europe. This is a major problem, in fact, and it was a specific issue addressed by the cooperative study that it was organized by Elita and uh, the European Foundation of Cliff, which involved uh, uh, many centers, 20 centers across Europe from uh, uh, seven uh, European countries. And what emerged is the dramatic, huge variation in the percentage of uh, patients with decompensated cirrhosis who were offered, offered a liver transplant for ACLF2 or 3 the figures varying between 30% in centers very active, uh, like it's in Strasbourg and many other centers in France, and less uh, to, to less than one or zero percent in many other centers, I would say, across Europe. So, and this poses the issue of equity of access to liver transplantation, which is a crucial point. Yeah. And, and second, the reason behind this huge variation are very different and possibly not the same in different countries. And I'm sure that we are going to develop this concept. Well, thank you, Lucas. So, you know, it's very emotive when you think about the difference between 0% compared with 30% in different countries. And Thierry, just coming back to you, you've done a lot of work in terms of trying to understand why is there such a different lack of equity through your questionnaires? Will you tell us a little bit about it, please? Absolutely. I think that's a, a really fundamental point because uh, what we're facing today 
um, is not a new drug that we have or a new uh, surgical technique that we want to spread, but uh, it's using pieces of the puzzle that already exist and putting them together to give access to a way of treating patients. And we already have all the, the pieces of the puzzles. All we need to do is put them together to put the intensivist with the transplant surgeons and the transplant hepatologists to make sure that patients like Amit um, have access to a life-saving treatment. And I think it's fundamental to keep in mind that these patients can have very high survival. And that's one of the reasons why I think Vinay Sundaram's work was so important to show uh, the hepatology community and the transplant community uh, that liver transplant works. And so one of the things that we identifies, uh, that we identified in the Elita Cliff study is that um, the uh, obstacle to uh, liver transplant for these patients is not so much uh, at the time of, is not so much organ acceptance or organ availability, but rather the, um, the inclination of the transplant centers to consider listing a patient who has ACLF3 and who is in the ACU, okay? Someone like Amit or someone else, you know, uh, who is in the ACU and sometimes they arrive in the ACU with ACLF3, they were not followed by a hepatologist, not followed by a transplant team. And, and um, the transplant team has with, together with the, uh, with the ICU to take the decision to list the patient while they were in the ICU. And what we noticed was that uh, lots of centers did not list patients in the ACU. And of course they didn't transplant them. Um, by contrast, those who listed patients were able to give them access to an organ. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's very important to tell our colleagues in the ICUs, especially in ICUs that don't perform liver transplant, that they need to refer those patients to call, um, to call specialized centers. If not, they're losing chances uh, outside transplant centers. It's fundamental, fundamental. Well, thank you, Terry, for that. Maybe, can we have slide number two, please? So maybe I come to Luca. You know, one of the things that you identified was that in the UK is one of the centers, one of the countries where we were doing very little transplants for ACLF3s. And what UK has done is to introduce a new allocation system for liver transplantation. And uh, where patients with ACLF have priority just below the um, uh, just below the acute liver failure and hepatoblastoma for kids tears. So, and here are some of the results. And I would be interested in hearing your comments in terms of whether we can use this as an exemplar for other countries to follow a similar pilot scheme. So over to you, Luca, your thoughts. Yes, that first of all, I really appreciated this initiative from the UK. It was quite a great decision, not easy, I suppose. And the criteria to me are quite convincing. These patients are in the ICU and they need some support for their organ failure. They are rather on dialysis or on vasosuppressor or intubated. The vast majority of them. So the criteria are very convincing and clear-cut. So their prognosis would be very, very low without a transplant, and you offer them the option of the transplant. I'm sure 
that this model would be uh, considered, and I hope it will be considered also elsewhere for sure. Just a comment on, on, on the numbers, because in one year you, uh, um, in UK, you had 22 cases of ACLF3. I suspect that they are bound to increase uh, with time because people get confidence, they see that the results are, are uh, uh, rewarding for the patients and for the clinician. But still, it is reassuring at this point of time is that the numbers in percentage is less than one, two percent than the generally. So the impact on the general uh, uh, community of our liver transplant candidate doesn't seem to be that important. But should the figures multiply by 10, then the problem arises. You know, you are not allowed to transplant patients with active uh, uh, use disorders, active drinkers. And we, in Italy, we try to do some of them. Should open the door to also to people with alcohol use disorders, the number would grow up <laughs> immediately. Uh, and in Italy, as a matter of fact, the vast majority of patients with ACLF3 are patients with alcohol use disorders. Yeah. Excellent, I would say. Very, very happy to understand and to see that something is, is changing regarding the, the adequate prioritization of these patients. Marina, can I ask you whether do you think uh, you feel reassured that uh, we are doing the right thing because there's such a good survival after transplantation in this selected group? I think you, this is an example that, I mean, that your country has put forward. Uh, and I think what we do need is prospective data, whether you are coming up with this data from your prospectively collecting this information. We do have information from retrospective studies, from registries, that this is the way forward. And so I think now we need to prove it and to make sure that uh, many other people believe in this. And mostly I think we need to come up with some data that we don't have yet. I think we don't have all the information that we want. As I mentioned before, I think the results sometimes are better than we expected from the literature. And I think this is related to the data that is collected in registries that is not always accurate. And so um, we need to really understand the survival of these patients, particularly those with uh, ACLF3 with four or more organ failures. And we need to understand, and I hate to talk about fertility, but we do need to understand if there's a subset of the patients that we can't transplant because their survival is just 0%. And I think we can't have that data based on a lot of retrospective studies that is fantastic to come up with the idea, to go forward, but um, leaves us with questions that are still unanswered. And the other question that we need is also to understand how to prioritize these patients, mm -hmm. because there's also data, and, and Thierry was saying before, the male system is not very good to accurately predict the mortality risk in these patients. Mm -hmm. But the other systems, we need to prove that they work um, prospectively, but mostly also that they don't um, have a, a, a negative impact on the rest of our population. And I think that is also awaiting liver transplantation. There are many um, indications for liver transplantation that are not um, adequately um, um, captured by the male. 
I mean, we have a lot of new oncologic indications. Um, and so there needs to be a balance. And this is the most difficult point here. And, and, and we need uh, prospective studies to understand how to use different models and then how each model and the cutoff for each model plays with the other one. For instance, to, 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 to uh, prioritize hepatocellular carcinoma, which is one third to half of the patients that we transplant in many centers around the globe. Well, thank you for that, um, Marina. Thierry, do you have a final comment on this uh, UK tier, a quick one? I think it's fantastic um, to be able to start giving access to, to liver transplant to, this patient, to these patients. I think it's important to keep in mind that at first you may have poor results and then get better as, as you're, as you're um, working on it more. Thank you. And finally, Marina, can we have slide number three, please? You know, you asked, you, you talked a little bit about, um, a lot about the unanswered questions. And I just... Uh, wonder whether you'll tell people about this amazing study which Altiers, Alita, and EF Cliff are running and what, what they can expect from this study and what the results will show, show so far. I think this is a great study and hopefully uh, we will recruit um, you as the head of this study. You, you'll be able to recruit enough uh, patients. Uh, this is an international really huge effort multinational with, uh, I, I can't remember, but like 38 centers in 20 countries, it's in the slide. So, but from uh, around the world, from uh, South America, North America, Europe, Australia, Asia, I mean, there are uh, centers from everywhere. And the idea is really to um, understand the outcome from an intention to treat a survival uh, point of view, of the patients that you transplant with acute ACLF2 and 3, which is one of the group of the patients that you list with, and then eventually you transplant the patients that are very sick but don't have acute and chronic liver failure, the patients with a male score greater than 20, but without ACLF, and uh, that you also list and following your, uh, in your list until transplantation and then after transplantation. And then the patients that for whatever reasons uh, are not listed, uh, but uh, are referred to your center. And uh, it's a very good comparative group, which I think will provide a lot of information. And I think the data so far, I think there's the recruitment uh, was a little bit slow at the beginning, but I think now it's catching up. And the data here, I think it's super interesting because it pretty much kind of confirms what we knew so you transplant these patients with ACLF, which is shown in pale blue, and they have an excellent survival with a mortality of only 4%. The patients who are, have ACLF and are not selected for liver transplantation, I think we will learn more about how this selection process, but these are patients who have a very high mortality, 64% uh, uh, so far in the data that we have. And then, um, and then we have the patients who are very sick uh, with the male score greater than 20. In my center, these patients will be transplanted immediately also. Mm -hmm. They're considered very, very sick. Again, they also derive a huge benefit from neurotransplantation. Their mortality is only 3.3%, which is extreme, is similar, almost the same as the ACLF patients. 
And um, there's a subset that is quite interesting. And they, these are the patients who are male. They, uh, Thierry was talking about these patients. Are the patients who are in the ICU because they decompensate, because they have a poor, they're high male score, but they don't have ACLF. And then they, while they are in the ICU, they develop ACLF. And these, again, are patients that if we don't really push forward, their mortality is also very high. So I think... Um, the data pretty much shows with the preliminary information data that we have, what we just discussed. Wow, so um, I think we've sort of um, covered almost uh, everything. We've talked a little bit about the patient experience. We've talked a little bit about selection. We've talked about equity. We've talked about benefit. And uh, I, I must bring this session to an end. We are already over time. And uh, first to thank my faculty, uh, Marina, Luca, Thierry, for this terrific uh, overview of uh, the issues with respect to liver transplantation. But of course, I must thank Amit and Dev for spending their time and uh, going through the emotional trauma of coming to share some really amazing experience with us. So thank you very much again, everybody, and uh, we'll see you around very soon. Bye-bye.